Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change? All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. This morning, I'm thrilled to be joined by Natalie Walker. Hello, Nat. Hello. Um, I'm going to jump straight into who you are um, before we, or your bio, I should say, before we go any further, and then, uh, and then we'll hop on with it. So for people in our audience, Natalie Walker is the founder and managing director of Inside Policy and a non-executive director across a range of boards, including the Paul Ramsey Foundation, who are committed to helping Australians defy disadvantage. Natalie works across areas of Indigenous economic development, domestic and family violence, children and family services, and disability services. Nat was the founding CEO of Supply Nation, an advisor to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner at the Australian Human Rights Commission, and was appointed by the Prime Minister to be Australia's representative at the 2018 G20 Business Women Leaders Task Force. Now, there's a deep, deep theme of social justice running through all of the elements of that. I can't wait to get into our conversation. So for people in our audience who haven't had the chance to come across you before, um, tell us a bit about yourself and your favourite question, why are you who you are? Wow. Why am I who I am? Well, let, I'll start with the easy question first, a little bit about where I've come from um, and my story. Well, so I'm a mum of two. I've got a son for, who's four, year, four years old, a daughter who's two years old. Um, I'm a country girl. Um, I'm a business owner. Um, uh, well, a country girl who now lives in the city and has been living in the city for the last 20 years. Um, Aboriginal, Yalangi from the Daintree Rainforest in far north Queensland. So um, got a only child, actually. I'm an only child, but I come from a very big family on both sides of my family. I've one of, one of about probably 150 grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Wow. So <laughs> um, I, you know, my cousins were like my brothers and sisters growing up. But, um, yeah, I am who I am and what I am is really driven by wanting to create a positive, positive social change in our country and knowing that um, I've done something to make our country a better place. Um, so that's really come from my family, I think. Mm -hmm. Um my grandfather on my dad's side, my Aboriginal um, grandfather, he experienced a lot of um, challenges in his life, as you would expect, being a young Aboriginal person at that time, growing up in the, um, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s. And, um, but he and my grandmother were always really strong about, we can make a good life for ourselves and we deserve that. And they really wanted to make sure that uh, their grandkids and their kids understood the importance of our culture. We understood our culture, but we also understood that we had a place in this new world as well. And that was our right, that we could have jobs, we could have homes, we could go to uni, we could do whatever it is we wanted to do. So, um, but also that, you know, we had to fight a lot harder for that. And that sort of bore out my sense of social justice, I guess, that the world isn't equal and fair for everyone. And that some of us start from a lower base, not because of anything that we do, but that's just the way that the system's set up, right? Yep. So um, when I learned, for example, that after years of my grandfather working, tirelessly to 
provide for his family and buy their first home to only have that home taken away from him because he's an Aboriginal man, you know, that stuff is, um, you know, really affects you on a deep level and when you know the people that you love have treated that have been treated that way so you know it it it, it in something affects you and that that um deeply and that just carries with you through your whole life so uh, you know and my grandfather on my mum's side italian immigrant um who uh, led an underground resistance during World War II when he was a teenager going under the cover of darkness at night trying to find arms caches held by the Nazis and hiding them so that they couldn't harm anyone with them. You know, in his adolescent mind, that was the way that he could help stop the war, right? Wow. So, you know, like we, the, I, I was born with the sense of, you know, injustice and maybe social justice and the world can be a better place for um for everyone and it needs to be a better place for everyone and there are people that aren't um that we really need to fight for so that's sort of why I am who I am I guess and a little bit about me would they share all those stories with you yeah they would my my grandfather um my paternal grandfather he passed away when I was 15 sadly uh but I because I'm one of the oldest grandkids um I got to I had the privilege of spending a lot of time with my grandfather and grandmother on my dad's side um every afternoon after school I'd be hanging out at their place because my parents worked full-time so I'd wait for them to finish work to pick me up so I'd spend a lot of time with Nana and granddad and, and he would tell me these stories and Nana would tell me her stories as well. Um, and, you know, one of those stories was uh, my grandfather got taken away and um, from his community in, you know, past Mossman um, in far north Queensland and taken down to Palm Island, which was the practice in those days and uh, Aboriginal kids being held um, in prison-like conditions on Palm Island when he he somehow he escaped I don't remember the detail of how he escaped when he was about 15 or so he got off the island and his whole mission was to find my grandmother because they were promised to each other and that's a particular cultural practice um, um, uh, which keeps the bloodlines clean so the elders promise um, children before they're born to each other to make sure that there isn't any intermarriage between uh, where, where there shouldn't be. And so my father's mission, my grandfather's mission was to find his promised wife. And he did, he found her and they got married and they, they had 13 kids. Mm. Um, so, and they were together until the day that he died. Um, anyway, and so, you know, he would tell me those stories I learned my grandfather, my maternal grandfather's stories in a different way though. He is a very good journal keeper mm. and he has boxes and boxes of journals. And so I said to him, they're all handwritten. I said, no, no, maybe one day I could type some of these for you. And so I started typing them and I discovered these stories as I was typing his journals, right? And then, you know, those, there are literally lot like there, I can't even count how many journals there are way too many for me to have written so my cousins and aunts and we all chipped in and wrote a type a transpose part of them but yeah that's how I learned um the stories of my grandfather so you know like they're our old people are our libraries right like okay. they the, the stories that they have and the wisdom that they have it's so precious and we need to know more I love that you, well, I love he captured firstly so much in his journals and that's enabled all of you to, you know, really get a really deep understanding. I think that's fantastic. Now, I wanted to ask you um, about um, cricket. Um, I just, I understand you had a passion <laughs> at a very young age for cricket. Tell us about no, that. No, I didn't actually, Melissa. Let's just be clear. Still to this day, I can't stand cricket. It's so un-Australian. And I, my husband and I really do worry that our kids will get into cricket and we'll, we will have to do Saturday cricket. Anyway. I hear you. I'm right. 
tell us about cricket and your background. But that wasn't the point of the cricket. The cricket really was just the means to an ends, which was I went to a Catholic primary school, which was fairly actually, I think, progressive for the time um, and for it being for its religion. But they still had antiquated views in my on my based on my perspective on um, the roles of girls and boys uh, at the primary school. In particular, when it came to doing choosing sports, girls could only well I only had one choice, which was softball. I mean, the name put me off straight away. Softball, like why do we need a softball? And then um, you know how you put the ball on the stick thing you hit it it's like why can't someone just throw me the ball and I can hit it so anyway I was bamboozled by that and then the, but the crick boys had choice they had cricket they had football they had I don't know a whole range of things I said well why can't we do what the boys do so I start I was just I was so indignant about it, it just really got me got my go I just could not let it go that we couldn't do cricket I didn't want to play cricket but it was the principle so I got every I rallied everyone I rallied my peers I rallied the teachers I lobbied the principal yep and we got cricket we it's like right okay girls can do cricket well I tell you the first time I stood I was on the pitch having waiting to bat a ball being bowled by one of like a, a boy who was probably twice my height and size I it was in that moment that I thought I don't think I want to actually be playing this game <laughs> I could get really hurt by this ball right now but I'm glad we have the choice I can choose the point is now I can choose it's my choice whether I play cricket or not I'm not being told I can't play cricket or not I love that early on early <laughs> on she's into it now um you're first person in your family to go to uni mm. Uh, to uh, to finish my degree so a couple of us all started around the same time but first to finish yeah congratulations on that where did that take you what were the possibilities you were thinking about at the time tell us how the yeah well so I grew up in a working class family migrant family on one side and Aboriginal family on the other and you know very very privileged upbringing in the sense of surrounded by love and family and culture um but not role model like not professional role models had lots of um, business role models and sports role models and creative role models but that never really spoke to my maybe the business side did um the entrepreneur side did but didn't really speak to me my sensibility and I love reading I loved science I loved understanding the world all that sort of stuff so and I did well at school I was academically um you know doing well and um so you know my role model at the time when I was going to high school ended up being Halifax FP I don't know if you remember that tv no, show I do. I do yeah I decided I wanted to be Rebecca Gibney I wanted to be a forensic psychologist. I wanted to be the, you know, assessing all the psychopaths and the social and the criminals. That's what I wanted to do. So that was, that really put me on the track to, well, that plus having um, a best friend who we were both um, uh, did well academically and both had an ambition to sort of do something more than stay in our community and go to uni. And so her and I sort of, you know propelled each other but also my ambition to be Halifax FP really sort of focused me to okay I need to go to uni I need to study psychology and I probably also need to do law and all that sort of stuff so that's what got me that's what sort of twigged and got me there you know you start out with these plans that it never ends up being right so I'm not Halifax FP I'm not a or you still don't want to head that direction is that is that the dream no that's I let go of that dream because you know why I let go of that dream? Because I um, I did do um, something fairly similar. So while I was, uh, after I finished my psych degree and while I was studying, finishing off my law degree, I actually did work as a, what was called a court coordinator. Um, so I used to support young people um, going through the youth justice system, going through the court process in particular, um, support them through that, but also assess 
you know, what is the best sentencing option and advice that we can give to the magistrate or the judge about based on all the supports we can give them in community, what's our best bet in terms of keeping them out of jail? Mm. Um, so that was my role. And I used to um, do that. Uh, I did that in Brisbane and Ipswich, but then also moved up to um, the Cape and Torres Strait to do that in the court circuit in the Cape. And um, I, I had a particular um, incident that happened. It was, you know, it's always a ends up being a culmination of things. The straw that breaks the camel's back. So this particular straw that broke the camel back, camel's back, was the um, this ten-year-old boy, uh, Aboriginal boy, who was remanded in custody, um, wasn't given bail for um, an offence. And so that meant that he had to be um, transported down to Townsville. So about 2,000 kilometres away from his community. English would have been maybe his third language. He, was, he had just turned 10 years old and um, the police were waiting for him because, you know, they hadn't been able to charge him for alleged offences he'd committed up until that point he'd turned 10, prior to him turning 10. So they were waiting for him. And... I just knew by this time I'd been in the system long enough to know that there were no supports for him. And the reason why he had to go to Townsville and the reason why he was being remanded in custody is because there was no support for him in the community. And for me, that was just wrong. That was a perfect example of the system failing yep. a child. No child of that age should be in jail. So I got in, I got on my first flight down to Townsville to see him, make sure he was okay. It was traumatic for him. It was traumatic for everyone involved, try to get his family down. And then it was in that moment I realised I cannot change the world one young person at a time, one case at a time. I've got to, what, where, what, but what's my option? And then I realised I was doing a leadership course at the same time and then um, my eyes were opened up to policy um, through that course and through talking to people who were presenting on that program and um, I learned about the Human Rights Commission and I learned about the change like you know advocating for change through policy I thought that's where I need to be that's what I need to do so that was really thank goodness I had that um, light bulb moment so early on in my career I would have been about 23 at that point yeah because that was the that was the shift, right? Like, okay, right. I'm not. I, I am not built for um, working one case at a time. I can't be a psychologist. That's yep. very valuable work, and that's very important. But I will get frustrated because I'm not seeing the system change. I need to be working on the system. So policy is where that's at, and that's where I've been ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's um you my understanding is you at one point you were at kpmg for a while yeah yep and my understanding was there was a a question in your own mind about not pigeonholing yourself at that point Mm. how does that fit in with that how old were you when you were there kind of thing how does that fit in with the story yeah so i was there um so i i had worked at the human rights commission and realized i need to needed to do something a bit different. I'd been in government up until that point. And I thought, I want to try something different. I've heard about this consulting thing and it just, you know, KPMG was advertising at the time. So I thought I'll put my hat in the ring. And I thought it's also a good opportunity to be working outside of Indigenous affairs um, because what is, you know, being an Aboriginal person, I hope it's maybe different for the next generation coming through now but certainly when I was coming through if you look Aboriginal and your CV says that you've been doing Aboriginal things you you automatically before you even have your interview you are pigeonholed into they only know Aboriginal stuff uh-huh. so um, I was on the front foot about that at KPMG when I was in, being interviewed and I think in my first interview I said look I know I'm Aboriginal, I know I've been doing Aboriginal stuff, but I don't want to be doing Aboriginal projects only at KPMG. I know that's the value that I can bring, but I want to, I think I can translate my knowledge and skills to other policy areas. And I want to be given that opportunity to do that if I was to get a job here. And to the 
my um, counselling partner's credit, Liz Forsyth, she, and she's still there at the firm. I think she's the global lead for infrastructure and government now. She stayed true to that. And I got the most amazing experience to work on um, policy issues that I never thought I would ever be involved in. Um, That didn't have anything to do with Indigenous affairs, but gave me really great instruction and experience that I could then translate back into um, the work that I now do in Indigenous Affairs. So um, when did that pull yeah. in where you're like, okay, now I'm now yeah. I really want to focus on this area? Yeah. Um, it was, you know, anyone who's worked in consulting and professional services knows how um, tiring and exhausting and relentless it is and I just needed a break from that um so I my um counseling partner agreed to to me taking a career break and in that I was a the interim CEO of a not-for-profit organization a part of that time and then um and then I just was sort of freewheeling a little bit and when I was uh, on career break I got a call from um, Doug Russell, and uh, who was the um, one of the founders of, of Supply Nation mm-hmm. before it was established as an organisation. And he said, Nat, I've heard about you, Michael McLeod and I, my, part- we, we, my business partner and I, we're working on something that we think you might be interested in. Can we have a chat to you about it? I said, yeah, sure, no worries. Um, and it turned out, you know, they were saying, we've got We've got government support. It was a new government. They were looking for new ideas. We've got government support for this thing called, back then it was called the Australian Indigenous Minority Supply Council. It was all about making, getting Indigenous business into the supply chains of the largest companies and government um, organisations. And we think you'd be really great at helping us with that approach, getting it off the ground. But, ah, I don't know. I don't know much about it. Um, I've only read some media articles about it, but, hey, I'm going to New York. So how about I meet with the head of the council in the US, just learn a bit more from her and um, I'll let you know how I go and if I'm interested after talking to her. So I did that. I went on a holiday to New York, met with Harriet Michelle from the US council and, yeah, within two minutes of meeting her, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm, I, you don't need to say anymore. I'm in. Like just the, the – the, I was just struck by her – well, her own power, but just the convincing way in which, you know, she articulated the power of procurement in terms of increasing prosperity for our people, for my people, mm-hmm. and what it had done for African-American First Nations and other minority groups in the US. And I just thought, yeah, I, I want to be part of that. So um, I called up Doug straight away, probably would have been three o'clock in the morning his time. And I said, yeah, I'm in, I'm back next week. So let's talk about this. And that was that, right? So, um, and for me, it wasn't so much about, it was, you know, obviously about being an opportunity to, Um, remove a a significant barrier for my people in terms of our um, economic participation but it was also an opportunity to bring together everything that I had learned to date in my career which was understanding policy understanding how to influence government to get policy change but also creating real like real substantive change that change it, and it has changed the landscape of our country mm. um uh so uh, and in terms of indigenous participation in our economy so yeah and in our last series as you know i got the chance to interview um the wonderful laura berry who's the current mm. ceo of supply nation who introduced us so yeah um, if anyone hasn't seen that interview and conversation i i just could not recommend it highly enough. It's incredible conversation. So you you were founding CEO there and then you took the decision to start your own business. Um, well, sort of, not really. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, I think a common thing with my, um, the way I work in my life is that I just give it my all. So I got a little bit burnt out at KPMG and needed to take time out. Same for Supply Nation. The rebrand of Supply Nation was my final act as CEO. And then before that, plus also securing much 
bigger long-term investment for the organization and at that point I handed it over decided it's time to go when I need a break um and I went back to New York and lived there for a bit and then came back to Australia and accidentally fell into the consulting thing I have to say because I had said to myself I'm I don't want to be a consultant um I don't know what I want to do but I don't want to be a consultant but when I came back to the into the country and you know once people know that you're back I started getting calls on oh, that we really love your thoughts on this or that or whatever so it really just grew organically and a little bit accidentally but um I love it now like I it's it's my first it really is my firstborn after my son isn't my firstborn my baby <laughs> my business is my firstborn um and it's yeah seven years strong and yeah loving every minute of it so can I ask, how do you, um, knowing you have a tendency to throw yourself at it and then get to a point where you need to take a break, how, seven years in to your mm. own business, how have you managed to navigate that this time? Yeah, well, um, it's been a lot of trial and error, I have to say. And look, I just don't think for, for, for being a, sole shareholder sole director set up if you're that at the beginning if that's what your business is at the beginning there is no getting around the fact that it's you and you got to put it's your sweat yeah. so it it is you putting in like late nights you know doing all of the hard yards answering the phone like that is just what it is um, a girlfriend of mine, um, a year after I set up Inside Policy, she set up her own business in partnership with a, another, um, with another, with a friend of hers, and I just thought that was just the smartest idea because, um, uh, and their partnership was um, constructed in part like there are a whole range range of reasons why their partnership works, but one of the considerations that they talked about was one of the partners was already had had her kids she wasn't looking at she was you know in a different point of her life and my girlfriend hadn't had children so they knew that by when she wanted to start having kids that the other partner could step in more to the business so um and so I thought that was a really sensible move and I wish I had actually sort of thought about that um when I started my own business but anyway so how I manage it now is um um I've got it, you know, I've built a really just super talented team around me. I have a GM, um, uh, two GMs. Um, I'll actually be moving into a strategic advisor role over the coming months. And we've got a new managing director who's stepping up, who's from the business, who's stepping up into that role. Um, so, you know, you build it over time, you grow, you grow, sort of getting out and taking care of yourself over time but there's no doubt about it in the beginning stages it is all you and it's tough to manage manage the workload and the burnout um but having said that I mean 2020 it forced me to stop yeah. very abruptly um not just because of COVID but because we had a couple of um things going on in our home life um that meant that I had to become full-time stay-at-home mum for my then one-year-old daughter um and I it was literally overnight that I had to do that mm. um and I had to hand over the business to my team so you know and that was for a good sort of four months that I needed to take out to be able to do that so you know, sometimes you can plan it and sometimes you just got to listen to the universe and go, right, okay, I just... <laughs> go with it. No choice. Got to go. go with it. Yep. Um, Nat, you are an incredible advocate for other people. I just wonder, are you comfortable advocating for yourself? Because often <laughs> we hear that uh, women aren't particularly good at that. What are you yeah. like advocating for yourself? Yeah, no, no, no. I like uh, so it's very rare that I do these types of things. I, I'm only talking to you because my very dear friend Laura, who you mentioned before, suggested Thank we you. talk. 
Thank you, uh, so my team knows that I'm constantly saying no to anything that is about talking about me. Yeah. So I, I just really am very uncomfortable about that. Um, and I think what that is, is I'm not really comfortable about, like I'm, I'm really comfortable about talking about ideas. Yes. I love talking about ideas. I love talking about the change we could make, how we could, you know, what, what, what's the different future that we can see and we could create together. But I'm not comfortable about talking about my role in that potentially. Yes. So that's sort of, yeah, I, so therefore what people see, and I think, um, yeah, what you would observe from, from me is that I don't talk about my achievements. I talk, of, I talk about ideas. I talk about this is what we could do. This is where we could be. And, you know, sort of, I, I, I sort of think that maybe um, on some subconscious level, I'm thinking, well, People can make their own assessment of how good or bad I am based on my ideas that I have. And like, yeah. Um, so yeah. Continue the theme of, um, of making you uncomfortable then, Nat. Um, and you know, I don't mean that, but um, why do you think you've achieved the success that you have? You know, if you have to reflect on that. Um, I, well, yeah, I, what is success is pro, is the question that's running through my head and, and there was the question running through my head in the lead up to this conversation. Uh, I don't, I don't know that I'm successful. I know that like, if you look at my CV and you see the boards that I'm on and the, uh, roles that I've had, one could infer, infer success from that. But I think um, I really put it back to, I make all of my decisions based off my North Star. Um, and where I haven't achieved something or haven't, I haven't been proud of what I've done, it's because I've not trusted my instinct and, and because my instinct has been saying that doesn't match up with your North Star and that. Like I... I can, I look back on a couple of times in my career and my personal life where I just go, oh yeah, that's what my instinct was saying. It just wasn't right. I didn't know why it wasn't right. Yeah. But, um, and generally it all leads back to just didn't, uh, it's just wasn't, it's not who I am. It's not what I care about. So I think that's, you know, I would maybe reframe success as what I, what I could say I'm proud of and, um, I'm really proud of the work that I do and work that I have done, the role that I've, the roles that I've played, because it's all been about trying to create a better place um, for those who don't have a have the best place now in our country, um, and you know I could be. I'm smart enough. I could be an investment banker. I'm sure I could be working in high finance or making squillions of. I could, you know, I. But that's not. That's so not interesting to me. Mm. And it's so not like even if I had squillions of dollars, building a rocket ship and getting to space is so not interesting to me. Being the first person to do that is this. Uh, I would be. I want to. I think of about if I had squillions of dollars, what could I do to really future-proof Indigenous self-determination in our country? What could I do to make sure that every child in our country does not grow up in poverty? Like, what could I do there? Like, that's what I, I don't think about how many shoes I could have or what how big my rocket ship could be. <laughs> So that North Star is, um, is very strong for you. What happens in your vulnerable moments? And we all have them, the moments where, you know, you, you, you've got a bit of self-doubt going on about whether you take something on or not. What happens then? Yeah, um, I become really introspective. I'm an introvert. So my way of dealing with that is to just go inside um, and so my friends will say, I am a, 
very bad communicator. So I've got, I've, I have like my best friend from high school, uh, known her since, we've known each other since we we're both 12 years old. She's still my dearest friend to this day, despite the fact that I am crap at calling her. <laughs> And um, she will send me texts every now and then. She sent me one over the weekend, actually. Just, go, just a welfare check. Yeah. How you going? <laughs> we're, uh, we're all good with that. Don't beat yourself up over that. But it's wonderful oh. to have people in our lives who are, yeah. who are good at it. Yeah. yeah. So I have people, and that's the other thing. Like I go, I go into myself and I've, I've been going through a phase of um, my life over the last couple of months where I've been very much introspective just trying to get through every day um and uh so I the people around me who are my nearest and dearest and who I trust the most know that about me and so they have their tools to pull me out of it just to make sure that I'm okay and that I'm getting a bit of a different perspective of things so my husband is is a star at that um and I have other friends that do that but I think you know, the, the internal dialogue that's going on in my brain at that time, you know, there, there is doubt. There's like, oh, can I do this? Can I manage it? Is it? Am I capable? Like they're the things that are going through my head. And then I, the moment where I feel like it could be going into a spiralling negative voice and out a little bit out of control, I just snap myself out of it. I go, nah, okay this is not helpful. I just got to stop this. And um, I, it will work out. <laughs> like it will, it will actually be okay because I'm telling myself it will be okay. And therefore I'm going to make it okay. So it is actually going to be okay. What support do I need? Who do I need to talk to? Who's the best brain at this? Who can do this? What can, what time do we need to do this? How can, so then you start to going into the planning mode and I find that if I can stop the negative dialogue, that stop that negative voice, reframe it, get into, okay, nut, we can do it. Just need to work out a plan to get there. Then that just pushes me through. Um, and, and I learned that from, um, you know, having done psychology, that whole cognitive behavioral therapy thing of you've got to change your thoughts because your thoughts affect your behavior. So just, cutting that connection between negative thoughts and negative behaviors but then also early in my oh, late in my 20s um, I did get some counseling because I was in quite a um, unhealthy relationship at the time and that I'd carry some of the tools that I took from those um, from that time from the working with that counselor to really turn to give me back power and control by having a plan. Yep. And for me, for the type of person that I am, I need a plan to feel like I've got things under control. So that's my simple fix for, yeah, getting out of the funk. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, just trusting it, it is actually going to be okay in big picture, big picture. Yep. <laughs> this Not is a moment in time. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask, um, you know, if I use the term confidence and courage, do they mean different things to you? Yes, they do. Why do they? Because um, sometimes I think you can have courage without confidence. Mm. Um, it's like, you know, the yeah the calling out bad behavior saving like saving something stepping you know those split second decisions where like I was just thinking of a moment where my daughter was in a death-defying decision situation I caught her out of the corner of my eye and I just your instincts just take over and you just you know go to save your kid like that's courage right um um, but I didn't have time to think about it, whether I had the confidence to do what I had to do to save her in that moment. You just do it. So, and I also think courage is also born out of um, purpose mm -hmm. and values. Like, so for example, 
um, speaking up, speaking up when, um, speaking up on bad behaviour, but speaking up when like, whoa, 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 everyone, is this really where we want to go, especially in board meetings, especially around um, when you feel like maybe we're deviating from our purpose? It's like having the courage to speak up is really important in those situations because, and it doesn't matter about your confidence, you've got a job to do. Mm-hmm. Your job is to make sure that you're an effective steward for this organisation, the organisation's future is being put in your hands and its governance is, and that's your job as a non-executive director. And so you have to have the courage to be able to call those things out where you think is sort of staring away from its purpose or its future. Even in my business, we've got to do that. And it's not about, I mean, you can't rely on the defence of, oh, I doesn't have the confidence to speak up. Mm. You've, you've got to actually, you've got to speak up. And, Yeah. Now, um, another theme that's come out of these conversations is that um, some leaders may not reach their full potential because they're they're not self-aware. So, you know, they're very busy doing, 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 but not actually stopping to think about who they're being and the impact they're having on others around you. Does that resonate for Hmm. you? Yeah. Yeah, Definitely, and I'm really conscious of it. Um, and and it's something that comes, it's the wisdom that comes with experience, right? Like I, if we were having this conversation with, when I was in my 20s, I'd be like, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is she talking about? Um, and, you know, and also, you know, you have to have, and it's experience, not just age, it's experience. You've got to have the bad experiences and the calluses and the bruises on those fronts to know, oh, I really need to be conscious of the emotional wake I leave behind or when I'm feeling under pressure, what, how others perceive me and and how I'm behaving or um, if I'm so focused on outcome, how people interpret that. Um, If it's, you know, we're not worried about the process. No, that's not what it means, but I've got to be, I've got to counter those things. So um, definitely, I mean, there's no... There's no shortcuts for self-reflection and being having being honest with yourself on those things. So you need, I think, as a leader, certainly my journey has been a journey of self-understanding. I definitely do not get it right all the time. You talk to any of my team members, and you know, I am totally fallible. Yep. Um, and that's true. That's that should be right. I'm a human being. That's right. Um, but. I work really hard to be on it. And also, you know, I had a have a weekly catch up with um, my general manager for ops. And um, one of our catch ups a couple of weeks ago, I said, I just have to start off by saying, I'm sorry if I'm abrupt and short and I'm not saying hello and all that sort of stuff. I know I know I'm under pressure at the moment, but um, that's no excuse, but I know that that's what I tend to do <laughs> when I'm feeling under pressure. She, I know. she said, yeah, but we know that I know that that's it's fine. I said, not fine, but I just want you to know that I know um, yeah. and I'm trying really hard. So it's you just got to be vulnerable. And, you know, because the other thing is, this is the other thing that I've learned about my leadership style. Look, I, I don't waste a minute. I work at a, I, I can deliver high quality in a split second. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's just my superpower. Like I can do that. Um, and so I can, I can be running multiple things at the same time and I can be thinking about the future, but then also in the detail and pivoting between the two fairly quickly. Um, that's my preferred way of working. But I, I now see that when others see that, they think that that's how they have to work, mm-hmm. which is not at all the case. So um, uh, I need to be really conscious about how I'm working and how I'm interacting with people the time I send email messages, for example, the timeframes that I'm giving myself to do to, to deliver things, all these things 
um, are really important. They may seem little, but it's really important because it's sending signals to the people around you Absolutely. who don't have the same level of power. They're going, there's getting this implicit message. Oh, Nat's sending emails. I don't send emails at three o'clock in the morning, by the way. But if I was sending emails at three o'clock in the morning, they're going, oh, she she does that for herself. Maybe she expects that of me. Mm. So, so that, you know, you just got to, I'm very conscious of that for myself and also being really conscious about um, in my own business, um, we do a personality um, assessment thingy, really just for, um, it's more for individuals to better understand themselves. And we support that because, self-reflection is so important for everyone not just for um not just for the ceo but for everyone so just really understanding yourself and being vulnerable and um owning up to your flaws and if people know that you're working on them they're forgiving they know they you know we're all in the same we're all in the same boat in that regard. Yeah. We've all got them. Nat, I've got two final questions for you. Mm. One is just taking us briefly to the diversity space. And it's just from your perspective, what is the, what's the, uh, could there be one question, but what is the question we should be asking about diversity? Hmm. What is the question we should be asking about diversity? The question that comes into my mind is why not? Question mark. Mm-hmm. I, we for so long diversity. We've had to fight for diversity. How about we just flip the script and we just accept? We just say it is. We are. And if it's not, we're going to make it. Yeah. We don't have to argue for it because actually it's our world. What's not diverse is who holds power, who makes decisions, who has the wealth. That needs to change, um, of course, um, and that's not reflect because that's not reflective of our world and how we live our lives. Like it just, it just defies logic that we have debates about whether we should recognize different genders on a birth, death, and marriages form. Like, if people want to identify, I don't care, but people, it is how people are identifying themselves. So let's just reflect that. Yeah. Yep. If people identify themselves as non binary, fine. Like, let's just reflect that. We've got, we've got to have a society that reflects the people who are in it. I just, it just does not make sense to me. Um, so it doesn't make sense to me that our, organizations um are not diverse because that's not reflective of of the communities that they operate in so we need to start with the premise that it is and our world will be and our structures and institutions will be and and stop having the arguments about why get on with it just get on with it Nat, my final question um, is, from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership look like and do you think it needs to change? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, this stumped me, this question, but you know where I, I, and what came or who came into my mind when I was thinking about that question was the amazing, remarkable women leaders who I have the privilege of working with every day so you know julia davison the ceo of good start early learning claire robs the ceo of life without barriers ilana atlas um laura berry the list goes on and on and on right and um i think about them and i think about what makes them remarkable and what makes them brave and um in that they're all women so what makes them feminine and brave feminine leaders and for me it's it comes down to this. When a problem needs to be solved, they are there. When something needs to be done, when shit needs to get done, they are there. Um, we had a, I had a thing come up with another organisation that I'm involved in um, early this week and I sent off a text to Julie. I said, Julie, can Good Start help out with this? Within five minutes, she had rallied a team 
within 24 hours, her team had connected with the team and the organisation that I was working with and a, prob- a very big problem has been solved. Just get in and get it done and, and, um, and it was all driven by a sense of we can't let an injustice can go on and what role can we play in making sure that that doesn't happen. So I think the flip side to it, so I also think about, I think about the current situation we are in as a country. Oh man, if these women were running the show, we would be all vaccinated. Yes. We would um, be produce manufacturing our own vaccines. We'd be shipping off vaccines to those other countries that need it. And all while we are feeding our children and making dinner for our children. Like seriously, this is, you know, that's, that's, you know, we just get stuff done really fast and in a really, yeah, in an amazing way. So, but the flip side of it is, is that I think sometimes we've got to, we, in our pursuit of wanting to help and do good, we maybe don't take, we jump to action when we maybe sometimes what we need to do is just take a moment and listen and understand and reflect and also just like ask the question am I the right person Mm -hmm. and not just the right person in terms of capability but is this gonna is this the right time for me because we don't you know we all get burnt out and we all give so much of ourselves to everyone else and maybe it's just not the right time because I need to take care of myself now. So, Nat, I have loved our conversation. I could keep going on and on and I am so uh, incredibly grateful that you chose to say yes to this conversation. Um, I know it's not easy for people talking about themselves and, and their achievements and I noticed you deflect a lot of the questions I asked about success. <laughs> Um, but you are incredibly successful. You're an incredibly strong advocate for so many people. And I just want to say thank you so much for, for everything you're doing. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Mel. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.